Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Uh, we are continuing our teaching in the book of Genesis. And what we do at Koa is we pick books of the Bible and we like to walk through verse by verse to see what God would have for us. Part of my job as a pastor is to teach the whole counsel of God's word. And so we've been through books like Ephesians and Ruth and James. And then this fall, all throughout next year, we'll be going through Genesis. And so if you've been with us for a while, you realize that today's passage is really different than the, the first two chapters of Genesis. Uh, if you're familiar with the Bible, the first two chapters of Genesis is this really beautiful picture of God creating. We see his power on display. We see his might, but we also see his character. We see there's intentionality in what he created. There's a purpose in what he created. Everything is good, he says. He says it, in fact, seven times in chapter one, after he creates something, he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. He creates humanity and he says that we are very good We see uh, a zoom-in story of Adam and Eve in chapter two, and we see their relationship together and what God intended for friendship, but also for marriage. And then we get to chapter three, and it's like the whole goodness of God's creation just explodes. And this is a really, really interesting chapter. And so it's in this chapter that we're gonna see lots of things about ourselves, how we deal with conflict with other people how we choose things that are not according to God's good plan and how that's harmful to us. But also we're going to see God's beautiful rescue plan that's in here. That no matter how far you've wandered or went away from God and his plan, God's got a good plan to come to us, to forgive us and rescue us from wherever we have been. So as we can look at Genesis 1 and 2, it's a beautiful story. But what in the world happened? Everything was good in creation. It was working according to way it was supposed to. Everything was called good. It was orderly. But what in the world happened? Guys, if you look at the world around us, you can tell that we're not in this morally perfect and well-working world that Genesis 1 and 2 has for us. Guys, you can just scroll through social media just for a little bit and you see war and poverty and corruption and deceit. You see all sorts of things. Guys, if we're really honest, this is hard, if we're really honest, not only do we see some things in the world that are not so good, but if we look in our own hearts, at our own lives, we're gonna see some things in us that are not too good either. So here's the big question. How did we get this way? How did the world around us get to be the way it is if the world was created good and moral and loving and generous? How did we get to the way things are now? And the most important question, what's our hope? Like, what's the antidote for the brokenness we see in the world and the brokenness that we see inside our own heart? Is there hope? Is there an antidote? Well, guys, that's why we're turning our attention to Genesis chapter three is we're gonna see what went wrong with the world, but how does God course correct this through Christ? So again, we're always gonna look in the teachings of the Bible. So let's look at Genesis chapter three and see what went wrong and how God makes it right. Genesis chapter three, starting in verse one. It says this, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, interesting talking serpent, Hmm, we'll get to that in a moment. Did God actually say, 
you shall not eat of any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Man, again, God created everything good and orderly and perfect for like two seconds. And then everything unraveled in creation. Guys, this is the same thing if you've spent time with little kiddos over any amount of time in your life. You give them one little rule and you maybe leave them unsupervised for a moment. And then you come back and there's crayons everywhere. There's markers, there's food, they're fighting. And you're like, what happened? I just left you just for a moment of unsupervised. That's exactly what we're seeing in the garden. There's disorder and there's chaos. And this is Genesis 3. And then we get introduced to this talking snake. There's questions about killer fruit. If you eat it, you'll die. And then there's now confusion about what God literally told them just moments prior to this. They're in some chaos and confusion. So what in the world are we to make of these beginning verses of Genesis 3? Well, the first thing that we're going to see today, which might be odd for us to talk about, especially um, in modern culture, we're going to talk about this concept called sin. I know that's not an exciting concept. I know that's difficult for us to talk about. But the Bible calls what's happening here the introduction of what we call sin. So let's look at the nature of sin that's happening because that's the thing that broke the world. It's the thing that breaks me when I'm angry at my wife or my children, or I speak unkindly, or I'm deceitful. It's this sort of heart disease I have called sin, where I don't love and lead others the way God loves and leads me. So let's look at the nature of sin. Uh, we got to back up a little bit to do this. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God records just one rule, like one prohibition that he gives to Adam and Eve. And here's what it is. He says this, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat of it, you will surely what? Die. Now, if you just for a second, like, you know me, if you're like my friend, you know that I'm not like a big fruits and veggie person. So if God tells me don't eat of this fruit, don't eat of this thing, I'm like, that's fine. Just don't touch the steak, you know, don't touch the chicken, especially Chick-fil-A, right? Like that would not be like maybe a problem for me per se, but it's way more than just don't eat of this fruit. It's what Adam and Eve think that's happening. They think that God is holding out on them. And my friend, you and I have the same challenge. We think with God's rules or commands that he's holding out on us, that fun and freedom and happiness are here, but God's saying, I want to keep you over here. And we think God is a God of rules and limitations. But in fact, those rules are in order to give us flourishing and, and freedom and joy. He's not limiting us. He's trying to liberate us for those things. Guys, in the garden, God gave Adam and Eve literally everything, guys. Every food they could imagine, any animal that they wanted to have as a pet. I'd love to have a pet tiger or a lion. I think that'd be pretty cool, right? They could have anything for delight, they could have everything literally but just one tree. And the question is, why? Like, why would God say, don't eat of this one tree in the midst of the garden? Why would he do that? Listen, I think that God is setting up, listen, God is setting up a daily reminder for Adam and Eve that their happiness cannot be found in the trees of temporal pleasure, but they can only be found amongst God's gardens of his good ways. Does that make sense? God is almost putting up this monument in front of them saying that you were made for your creator and nothing in all creation 
can satisfy you. So don't go chasing jobs or relationships or houses or success to satisfy you. God's trying to protect them. And so what he's doing is he's setting up this monument, this monument of remembrance, a visual reminder pointing out to them that all they need is the creator and they're fully sufficient in him. And he's putting out this tree and reminding them, hey guys, this is the thing that's not gonna satisfy. You already have everything you want, everything you need. You have love and security and comfort and care. And this one tree is a reminder that you have all this and you don't need creation to satisfy you. And I'm gonna have you a visual reminder of that. Does that make sense? God is trying to show them you don't actually need this thing that you may think you do because you have me. So God is giving them something good. God is not just this cosmic killjoy dangling some sort of candy in front of their kids. God's not, God's not doing that. Guys, just like a parent, we've got Halloween coming up and some of you might be doing trick-or-treating or some sort of fall festival at school. And just like a good parent tells their kid, no, you can't have candy as your whole entire meal because it's going to hurt your stomach. God's doing the same thing. If you build your life off of your job, or relationship, or success, or parenting, or marriage, or whatever it is, if you build your life off of created things, it's going to hurt you. It's not just going to give you a stomach ache, like if you eat too much candy. It's going to give you heartache and life challenges. And so God, in the midst of the garden, sets up a monument of remembrance. You don't need creation to satisfy you. That's why I'm here. That's what God is saying to us. And so guys, what we're learning from this is when God gives a limitation, it's not to hold something back from you. It's actually to hold something for you. He's holding out joy and a way of living that's free for you. Guys, some of us may be in jobs right now that before you got that job, you thought you were gonna love it. You're like, I can get paid how much for doing this and this many hours? And then all of a sudden the boss asked for some more work for you to do. And a couple of people got fired or they left. And so their responsibility became whose? Yours. Their caseload became yours. And all of a sudden you're overburdened. What you thought would give you freedom actually made you feel like a slave. And I'm not saying jobs are bad. I'm not promoting you quitting your jobs. Make sure you get that clear. But what I'm saying that sometimes when something looks like it can be liberating, it's actually gonna be a limitation to you. That's what God is trying to help us from. That jobs, career, success, romance, anything, nothing in creation can satisfy. Only the creator can. And that's why he sets up this tree in the middle of the garden to remind them of that. Now let's get back to the text. Uh, It starts out, by the way, this passage with some pretty interesting sci-fi feeling stuff. Like it starts out with a talking serpent. That's kind of odd to me, right? Some of you have seen Harry Potter. You're like, I get talking serpent. That's fine. That's no hill for me to, you know, struggle over. But for me, I'm like a talking serpent. This seems kind of unique. This is a bit odd, right? Now, remember the text says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, so he's speaking, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? Now listen, it's interesting. The Bible doesn't press the details, guys, too much about this talking snake, but it does share this passage, three things about what we can learn about this talking snake. One, 
This serpent was either embodied or used by a fallen angel, and his name was Satan, which means accuser, to communicate with Eve in some way. Was it some sort of telepathy going on? Was it actually some sort of verbal thing? I have no idea. We have in another case in the Bible, there's a talking donkey. And if there's really a God and he creates all, everything with his power, then I'm sure then it can be in the realm of understanding that he can make at least an animal talk one time in all of existence, right? God takes a little bit together. So the serpent was either embodied or used somehow by Satan. Number two, we're also learning that Satan is not equal with God. So Satan and God are not like these like, opposing forces like Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader and they're both equal and what's going to happen? Like, no, like the serpent's created and God is the creator. There is no imbalance of power here. God is supreme and at any moment he can just crush the enemy's head and be done with Satan. So there's not an equality here that Satan is indeed created. It's that the Lord God had made. God is supreme even over evil and sin. Number three, we learn that Satan's goal is to dishonor God and deceive his people. Dishonor God, deceive people by causing us to not love, to not trust and not follow God. That is Satan's rule and reign on the earth. That's his purpose on the earth. Dishonor God and help deceive people from not loving, not trusting, not following God. So with this in mind, he approaches the woman in verse one. And he does it in this snaky, like lowly dealing. So I, I do think there's probably a real uh, physical, historical uh, serpent that's somehow doing this. But I also think it's also poetic as well. The serpent has this slimy, sneaky, like lowly, dishonest way of doing this, using slithery deception to go in for the kill on Eve. So he starts out this deception. He says, did God actually say did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now notice the ploy here of the enemy, right? Notice the ploy here. He's trying to hurt Eve. He's trying to help Eve not walk with God, to trust in creation, not the creator. He wants to dishonor God and hurt Eve. He wants to wreck her life because she's made in the image of God. And so he walks in there and he doesn't use a denial of truth. Notice that. That would be too easy of a ploy, right? God said, do not eat of this tree. And if he's like, no, God didn't say that at all. Like that would be too easy. Even like, yeah, he, he did. God literally just told my husband and I, like don't eat from the tree. So he doesn't start out with a denial of truth. He starts out with helping her to question the goodness, the goodness of that truth. Not the accuracy of it, the goodness of it. And we're gonna unpack this more in a moment, but I wanna get through a little bit of the teaching first, the goodness of it. He's expressing just the right amount of skepticism, a slightly incredulous, like it sounds like this. Can you believe that God would actually do that to you? It's like the first Valley Girl. Like if you guys watch any of that 90s stuff, like, oh, no, she did not. Did she really just say that? Like, I know that's a really bad thing. That's all I'm recording. That'll stay with me the rest of my life. <laughs> I get that. But that's the way it said. Did God actually say that to you? I thought he was good. Did he actually, that's what's happening. And so he's like, hold, hold on a sec. Yeah, like he did say that, but, but what was his purpose in saying that? And you begin to feel with her response, is God really good? And you'll see that in a moment. And so what we're gonna see here in a moment that he's gonna use two tactics and he uses the same on us. Satan's goal is to help us, try to help us 
in the worst of ways, question God's goodness and his truthfulness. And that's what he started with is questioning God's goodness. Did God actually tell you not to eat from that tree? But he doesn't start there. Satan tips a step further with an exaggeration then. It's in the second phrase. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now listen, God did forbid one tree, right? Like one tree, but not like every and any tree. Satan is basically framing this question with, God isn't letting you eat from any tree in the garden, isn't he? And we're like, no, God let them eat of every tree in the garden. Like all of them with the exception of this one, because it was a monument showing them that they really needed God and not creation, then that's how he works, guys. He does the same thing for you and the same thing for me. He'll cause you to doubt the goodness of God's words and the truthfulness of God's words. So here's Eve's response to this trickery. Notice how she responds. She begins to believe maybe that God's not good to her. Verse two, she says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, which is right. But God said, which is good. She's repeating God's words. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Hold on, well, hold on, Eve. Did you notice her response? At first she replies with the initial amount of grace and wisdom and truthfulness, at least initially. And she even remembers and recites the first part of God's word, which is a good practice for all Christians, by the way, to remember and to recite God's word. That's a good thing. And Eve does that. But then she owns her own. She adds her own exaggeration. She adds, neither shall you even touch the tree or you will die. She's like super sassy about, did God even say that? Did God say they could not even touch the tree? No. In fact, what are they to do in the garden? To cultivate, to care for. Well, then what's going on in Eve's heart? She's believed the first thing, that God's not good. So the way she spins that, she's like, yeah, God's mean. He won't even let me touch it. Oh, girl, hold on. That's not even true. That's what happens with the enemy with us. We begin to doubt God's goodness, God's goodness. And for Christians, there's a whole bunch of stuff that feels like that. We think about sexuality, think about our finances, think about relationships, how we should speak to one another. And we might think, God, that's a lot of rules. You're not being good to me. Why can't I do this with my sexuality or my gender, my relationships with my money? Why do you just put rules at me, God? Are you even really that good? Because look at my friends, God, they seem to be doing fine with how they're living that out, how much money they make, what they do with their careers. And we begin to slowly and subtly doubt God's goodness. That's what's happening with Eve. And she thinks, God won't even let me touch it. God's being mean to me. He's holding out on me. Do you see how this works? If you just take a moment and think about your own life just for a quick second, where do you do this? Where do you feel right now? Don't say it out loud, it'd be awkward for everybody. <laughs> okay, this is not community group, which I, that's the place for that. <laughs> but where in your life do you feel that God's holding out on you? That life would be better if... He would allow this, he would give you this, or he would stop this from happening. And in that place, you feel like God's just not being good to me. I prayed for this, I've wanted that, and he just won't. He's standing back with his arms folded, putting rules on me, and you doubt God's goodness. That's what's happening. And if the enemy can get you there first to doubt his goodness, then he will get you to doubt his truthfulness. That's exactly what happens. It's exactly what happens to us 
as well. So now the serpent ends with just what I'm saying. He's caused her to doubt the goodness and then he goes in for the strike, verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Boom, there it is. Got you to believe that he's not good. Now I'm gonna tell you, his words aren't even true. His words aren't even true. He drops the most um, aggressive kind of like fang bite into the truth of her heart, says you will not certainly die. Christian, the same thing is true for us. Listen, the first doctrines, the first belief that you and I will be tempted with is that God's word is not good and it's not true for me. Even if he promises this, if he tells me this, it's not good for me. I know what's best. I know how to live my life. I know what's best for my body, my, just, my choices, where I should live, what should I do? I know what's best. God, you don't know. I don't know if I can trust you. And then I don't even know if your word's real anyway. I don't know if I can give my life to this, rely on it. And that's exactly where the enemy can get you and just rip you up. That's what's happening here. Now, verse five, it is true though. It is true. Satan does say something true here. He says, well, if you eat of this, God knows that when you eat of this, Eve, your eyes are gonna be opened and you will be like God. Notice, by the way, isn't she already made in the image of God? That's another ploy of the enemy too. You'll be someone if you can do something or get something. Guys, that is the trickery of my own life, by the way. If I can just have this thing, if I can just do this, if I can just be successful here, if I can just have that, then I will be like someone. If I can have something, I will be someone. That is not true. I'm already made in the image of God. I'm already loved deeply. God proved it when he hung on the cross for me. I am significant and valuable because he poured out his life for me. And so Eve is beginning to think that she's not significant. She's not made in the image of God. She's just like any other creation. She's as discardable as a tree that has its leaves fall in the winter, whatever. She believes that maybe she's not even made in the image of God. Oh, I hate the ploys here. The same ones that are used in my own heart. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. But guys, it's so much worse than that. In some sense, what he's saying is true. It's worse. She just won't know the difference between good and evil, but here's what it means. It means then she'll begin to self-pronounce what's good and what's evil. That's even worse. She'll begin to pronounce in her own eyes what's right. She'll become like God, claiming some sort of independence, saying, I don't need you, God, to tell me what's right or what's wrong for me. I am the knower and the seer of all, and I will pronounce what's good or what's evil. Man, that is so hard. That what she's doing is she's positioning herself the enemy is tempting her to think you could, you could be like an equal God too. You can rule and be like him. You can set up the rules now, Eve. You didn't like the rule God gave you? Now you can set them up. You will be like God. You can determine what's good and evil. And that sounds so good to her because she thinks that God is holding out on her. Do you see how this thing works, guys? It's the same thing for us. If he can doubt, if he can cause you to doubt God's goodness and he can cause you to doubt God's truthfulness and then you determine what's good for your life, what's most helpful for you. And we begin to believe other false truths like live your best life or YOLO. That's how I grew up. Megan, you grew up the same way. YOLO, right? You only live once, just do what's best. Megan's one of my good friends from Charlotte. They had helped to start a church in San Diego. And welcome guys, love you guys. Glad you guys are here. Um, and um, I don't know where I was at, just 
YOLO, Megan, sorry. Um, yeah. Um, but I think what I'm trying to get to, guys, is that you'll believe all kinds of other things. All these quotes, believe what's best in your heart, live your truth, all of these things. And they sound right on the surface. But what's happening is we're saying, no, 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 I know what's right for me. I know what's best. I'm going to live this way. So what happened? What did Eve do? The thing bites in, the poison goes down to her heart. And here's what she does in verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight for the eyes and the tree was to make her wise. Man, just by the way, guys, things she already had. She already had good food. She already saw the beauty of everything created. Everything was already a delight. She was already wise by trusting and following God's ways. Guys, listen, that is what sin is. <laughs> sin is the enemy telling you, you need something more to be satisfied than what God's already given you. You need more love in your relationships. You've got to be more significant. So you've got to climb that ladder at your job. You've got to make more money if you want to be comfortable because you need comfort and you need possessions to, to, to live the life of happiness and care. You deserve it. All of these types of things. She already had it in Christian. If you're in Christ, you already have everything you need in him. That love, you can't find it ultimately in the relationship. It's ultimately in him. The comfort, the security you're looking at in your bank account, all the time to make sure you can make it in Boston in this life, that security is already in him, the one who has the past, present, and future in mind for you. And you're his child. You already have it. It's not in my notes, but it's just in my heart. And this is why I've been struggling with my own life this past week. So she takes the fruit, she eats it. She gives someone notice this to her husband who was with her. That joker's not doing anything. He's just standing there watching the temptation happen. Doesn't step in to lead, to defend, to protect, to speak truth. He abdicates. That's a sin within itself. And then he ate. He wasn't loving his wife. He began to believe if God was holding out on him too. Guys, listen, it's often good things that we turn into God things that gets us into trouble. Inherently, there's nothing really wrong with fruit, but it's what that fruit represented, that you don't need creation to satisfy the core longings of your heart. It's ultimately the creator. It's good things, guys, that'll often get us in trouble. It's putting our marriage above God or parenting above God. It'll make your job significant. Whatever, you guys get it. I can give you a thousand things. You already know what that is in your own life. When you put a good thing above God, it's what the Bible calls an idol. And you begin to serve that idol and sacrifice to that idol. And that idol will never love you, will never serve you, will never care for you the way that Christ himself does. So guys, let me give you more of the practical part. That's more of the teaching element of this. We kind of take a breath from the teaching element. And let me give you some practical things of what's going on here in their hearts and what goes on in your heart. What goes on in my heart? There's a really good pastor that I admire and respect. It's J.D. Greer. And you guys have probably heard that for, I don't know, a decade if you've known me. And he notes in this text that every sin, every disobedience, every time follows the same three-pronged pattern. And let me give that to you. The three-pronged pattern that happens in your life is just this. Unbelief gives way to substitution, gives way to rebellion. Now that sounds really intense, okay? 
really intense, but I, I want to show you this subtle movement away from God. Because Adam and Eve didn't start out with just like, yeah, let's blast God. Let's like burn down the, the garden. Like that's not how they started this thing. They were just like, I'm not going to listen to you about the, the fruit eating thing. It's a subtle rebellion, but it always starts with unbelief that gives way to substitution that gives way to rebellion. Let me tell you the first thing, unbelief. The serpent launches his offensive attack with the words that God actually say. He's trying to uproot their belief. Uproot that God is not good. That he's not truthful. That's what he's going to do in you. He's gonna unroot your belief. Here's how it happens. He assaults the character of God to you through your circumstance. And it sounds like this maybe for us today. God doesn't have your best interests at heart here. He doesn't really love you because if he did love you, would this really be happening to you right now? Would life really be this hard if God loved you? Have we, has anyone ever had that thought? Just raise your hand, just be honest. Like, am I the only one that's had that thought? Yeah, now that's their hands start racing. Like, yeah, let's just, let's just own this up. Why is that the case for us? When life gets hard, you and I think, well, if God really loved me, why would this be happening? That's a ploy of the enemy. Now that might sound really weird. Like, bro, I just came to visit your church on Sunday. You're talking about enemies here and ploys and snakes talking. But just hear me out. You, you've thought some of these things in your life, haven't you? Maybe you, you came today and you're like, I don't know if I even believe God exists because how could a good God allow that thing to happen in my life? And we begin to think that, well, if he's not good, then maybe he's not even real. Maybe that's where we're at today. And that's part of the enemy's work in our hearts and lives for our own hurt. We also think this, I can't really trust God. I'm afraid to pray that prayer that whatever you want to do with my singleness, God, whatever you want to do with my infertility, whatever you want to do with my job, I'll just trust you. I want to put it in your hands. I'll do wherever you call me to go, I'll do it. Some of us are afraid to pray those type of prayers because we don't trust the goodness of God. God, I'll go wherever you go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. God, if you want me to pastor, uh, step back from being a pastor, God, if you want to move to this city, if you want me to be a church planner here, if you want me to go overseas here, am I open to that? What if God calls me to have more children and we do foster care adoption and we adopt more kids? Emily is feeling led that way. And I'm like, I'm not feeling led that way right now. In fact, can like someone else help take care of our kids for a little bit and give me some vacation, right? But my heart needs to be open, God, you're good? Or am I living my life the way I want to live it? Or the thought might be like, hey, you, you know your life. You know what's best for you. Live your own truth. All of these things. And so he even tells her, you're not going to die. He's uprooting the beliefs. Guys, every time you are tempted, these are the core components of that lie. God does not care about you. You should follow your own heart. You should live your truth. And don't worry about any sort of consequences or judgment or discipline from God because maybe there's not even a God. Those elements happen every time we're tempted with something. Starts with God's not good, doesn't love you, doesn't care. He's left you alone. He won't answer your prayer. And then you're like, does he even exist then? Is he even real? Can I trust anything? That happens all the time. Happens to every single one of us because that's the ploy of the enemy. And if you know that's the ploy, then you can have a defense, right? You can have a game plan. You can have a shield. Number two, what do we do when he uproots it? It's called substitution or idolatry. Idolatry is just simply elevating someone or something to the importance level that God is on. Make sense? Just elevating someone or something to the importance level that God is on. So we think, man, I can't live without money. 
gosh, I gotta have romance. I gotta have respect in my job or my family. I gotta have a wife. I gotta have kids. I gotta have a husband. I gotta have comfort. I've got to have these things because God is not good. He's holding out on me. So I substitute the creator for the creation because he's not good. I don't believe him anymore. So I've got to replace the things I need from him with something in creation. I've got to substitute God out. And so that's what happens with Eve. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. She saw that the food was good. It was going to make her wise. It's going to help her. It's going to make her be like God, significant. She substituted. Guys, we do the same thing. We take whatever who God is and we say, I need comfort and I need love and I need respect. I need care. I need security. God, help me. But I'm going to turn to this friendship because I'm not finding it there. I don't think it's there. I need romance here. I need money. And that's what we do. We substitute. So it's unbelief. He's got to uproot you. And then he's got to replant you in somewhere else that's going to hurt you. And then what happens, it culminates in, let her see, rebellion. Rebellion. Guys, let me ask you, where do you believe these lies? Where are the lies currently growing in your own life right now? Where do you believe that God is not good to you? Is it your marriage? Is it with your kids? College students, grad students? What about school? Do you feel neglected, not cared for, overseen, underseen? (laughs) How are you feeling about God's goodness and love towards you? Because if that wavers, then you begin to question anything that the scriptures have to hold. For sake of time, I'm just going to sort of uh, skip through this one part and move on to the next part. It's Megan's fault, Caleb's fault. I've been preaching longer. Haven't seen him in a while. Number two, the results of sin. We saw the nature of it. And now we're talking about the results. We okay just talking about sin. I know that's not fun. We don't like all my sermon points aren't like sin, 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 sin every single week. But we understand that sin is something in our hearts that God wants to root out for your good. So that's what we're talking about. Okay. Results of sin. Number two. Here's the first result that happens with sin. It's called shame. Shame, guilt. We've all felt that. Let me show you what happens in the scriptures. Verse seven. Then the eyes of both of them, they were opened. They were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. Man, what did Adam and Eve feel when they sinned against God? They felt what? Shame and nakedness. Now, if you've read the story, guys, you know that they were already naked before this and they were loving it. Remember Adam's little poem that he wrote about his wife? This is the last flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. He wasn't just, you know what I'm saying? Like he, he was looking at her, he was loving that and they were, to get, they were married, right? I'm not trying to be grotesque. They were married and they enjoyed it, but they were naked before, but why now? They're like, we're awakened to, they were naked? Like, what's the difference? Listen, they didn't feel naked before, although they were, because they were clothed with something. They were clothed with the pleasure and the love and the acceptance of God. But because of their rebellion against them, they were stripped of this feeling of pleasure and acceptance because sin separated that from them and God. So they felt naked physically, yes, but they felt spiritually naked, ashamed. And so they were afraid and they they hid. So what did Adam and Eve do when they felt shame? They hid, they ran, they covered up not only their nakedness, but they tried to cover up their shame. And guys, don't we do this too? When we get in trouble with our spouse or a coworker or roommate, so to do something we forgot, what do we do? We lie. It's a loincloth. We lie because we're afraid we won't be loved anymore. 
if someone knew the truth about us. Guys, in each of your hearts, you have two cravings. You wanna be fully known and fully loved, but you're afraid to be fully known because if you know that you were, then maybe you wouldn't be fully loved. And in Jesus, you have both, Christian. You are so fully known, every single good thing, every single bad thing, every sin. He knows you fully, dies for the sins, and then he loves you fully. And this community is to represent that. That's why I love community groups and DNA groups. You are to come as you are, confess who you are, and be loved as you are right then. And this is what God's inviting us into in the gospel. He lived, died, and rose so we could have a place with him in this fully knownness, in this fully love that he has. So this is the metaphor for the human heart, guys. We hide in some way or another. There's a playwright, Arthur Miller. He wrote The Death of a Salesman. And he said this. He said that he quit believing in God, large part because he couldn't accept the doctrines about guilt, shame, or judgment. He thought that by freeing himself from God, he would find freedom from that guilt. But what he found instead, he said, by his own admission, was that the feeling remained but that he lived and died based on the audience's approval of his place. Inside his soul, he needed to hear, well done, you are good. But all he had done was substituted out God for other people. Approval was his loincloth and applause was his hideaway. Guys, we do the same thing. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, you know that you even have gone against your own core convictions and values. Like maybe they weren't Christian values, but you had your own standards and you violated your own standards for what you wanted to do in a dating relationship or how you wanted to spend money or how you wanted to treat someone and you violated your own standard. And so you felt something called what? Guilt. And so often we can numb guilt with drugs or sex or escapism or alcohol. We can numb it out. But the only way for us to really deal with that guilt is to be fully known in it and for someone to forgive us, to know us fully in that and to love us and remove that sin. And that is what Christ is offering to all of us. And you know what? The favorite fig tree, the favorite loincloth of us in this room is, the favorite hideaway is religion. The favorite loincloth we like to use with our guilt is religion. It says again, verse seven, they made fig leaves for themselves to cover up the shame. Guys, fig leaves are the number one, the first OG, Religion's the first one for the loincloth. It's the first thing that we hide in. So we say, I'll make up for the guilt by going to church or I'll pray real hard right before communion so that maybe God won't strike me dead and I'll take communion. Or, oh, I need to serve this week. Okay, like I need this job or I need this promotion or I need to do good in school. So I'm gonna go to church this week or I'll go to community group this week because God can't give me that thing if I don't do this thing. You know what I'm saying? I'm just talking about my life, okay? And it's, we're replacing, we're, we're putting on this religion saying, well, if I just do good things and maybe I'll just feel better and I can maybe just pull along God and get him to do what I want him to do. And that's what we, we use religion, not as a relationship with God, but this tool of bribery with him because we don't think he's what? Good to us. The number one substitute for true relationship with God is Religion. We come up with some revised version of paying off God 
I'll give my money, God. I'll do good, God. I'll live this way for you, God. I'll read my Bible, God. And God is saying, there's no amount of good works that can cancel your bad. I've got to literally die in your place. And would you receive that that's what you need? That you can't take away the guilt. But there is one who loves you that lived and died in your place so that you could be without it. That the penalty you and I have for sin, which is death, Jesus took it on himself in joy so that you could be set free of that guilt and that shame. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter what you've been, this is the love of Jesus. Don't hide behind the loincloth of religion, of good works. When God says it's not good enough anyway, I can't fix the wrong. Oh, I can. And he offers it to everyone, to the worst of people like me who have used people, who have hurt people, who have said things, have done things with my body before I was a Christian to other, all sorts of things, things I've said and done. And God in his love reached me in that place and loved and forgave and died for me. Not only do we see the result of shame, but we see that the result is a broken relationship with God. That's what sin does. It's a broken relationship with God. Let me read verse eight to you. The story, it says, and they heard the sound. Man, can you imagine this for a moment? They've never sinned before. They've only known God's love and grace. They've never experienced any sort of correction moment. So verse eight, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It was clearly a Boston fall, no doubt. Foliage everywhere is beautiful. I'm just kidding, that's not true. That's not theologically all there, but just hear me out. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the cool of the day. It was New England. And the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. By the way, this is like in all the cartoons where you have like this guy and he like hides behind this really small tree. That's Adam, no doubt, is what's happening, okay? Verse nine. But then the Lord God called out to the man and he said to him, where are you? That's not just a physical question. That's also a spiritual question. Where did you go? What happened in your heart? Yes, where are you physically? But where did you go with that trust that I was good? Did you not see everything I gave you? Where are you? Verse 10. And he said, I I heard the sound of you in the garden, God, but I was afraid because I was naked. And then I hid myself. Guys, there's this broken fellowship with God that we see here. And instead of enjoying God's fellowship, whatever it meant to say that God was walking in the garden with them, God met with them and they enjoyed it. I don't know what this looked like, but he heard God and they walked with God. They experienced him in ways that you and I have yet not to experience. Through all of the Christian experience in every religion, people have been trying to find ways to be connected with God, to feel him, to enjoy him. And Adam and Eve had this. They had this deep, intimate connection with God, their maker, that brought them great joy. And now it was gone. And they hid from this God. It's a broken relationship. Guys, it's interesting that I think that Adam and Eve were afraid that God was going to come and destroy them, that God would come and end them. When I think God was coming to rescue them and redeem them. They heard him and they were afraid. Guys, for many of us, we may be afraid to come to God today with their honest, nastiest part of our life. There might be something hidden, dark, deep inside you that only you knew. And if someone else knew it, ooh, you would be done for is how you feel. So you hide from God about it. You hide from your friends, your significant others about it. You hide. And God is saying to you today, listen, where are you? 
come out of that hiding. I wanna bring you to myself. I wanna know you fully and love you fully. And wherever you've substituted me in with your life, wherever you wandered into destruction, I wanna bring you out, not to hurt you, but to help you, to give you the real source, not the substitution anymore. So friends, just wanna be honest with you guys. I have done all sorts of terrible things in my life. I'm literally just a trophy of God's grace. If you thought that I would plant a church and be a pastor and love anybody, like ever, like if you knew me in middle school, high school, you'd be like, this is a joke. This guy's a pastor now. Yes, it is a joke, right? But in some regard, like all I am is a trophy of God's grace. Guys, you can come to me and share everything and you will not hear shock from me because I'm like, oh yeah, I've, I've probably done that before. Guys, that's what your community group leaders are there for as well. We wanna be a church that you can come fully as you are because I don't want you to be stuck where you are. Where are you today? Where are you, Christian? Where are you struggling with sin? You've wandered away. And if someone knew your life would be destroyed, your marriage would be wrecked. Eventually that could happen unless you come out today. You're honest with where you've been and what's been happening. Number three, there's not only broken relationship with God, but broken relationship with each other. This is a really funny scene, by the way. It's kind of comical and we kind of need that moment every once in a while when we're reading scripture. Not only did it bring shame, sin did, but brokenness with God, but also with others. Look at it. He, God said, hey, Adam, who, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? God is trying to get a confession because a confession is good for his soul. God already knows it, but he's trying to help Adam confess it, to name what was wrong, because that will help Adam heal have you done this? And the man said, the woman, that woman you gave to me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And God in love takes this moment to help the woman try to confess. Not that Adam's off the hook, but he wants to give the same grace to the woman to confess. So the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, we was the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate it. There's just blame shifting going everywhere. It's funny in some degenerate sort of evil way, that they're just going back and forth. They're just shifting the blame to each other. Guys, we do the same thing. We will say, I'm so, I was just so stressed that I lashed out on you to your spouse or your kid. I was just so worried or overwhelmed that I just responded with sin. We blame shift. We don't own that we were the ones that did wrong. We put it on our, our stress. Well, they did me wrong first. So I responded back with a harsh comment because they gave that to me. Or I ran with the wrong crowd or it was difficult for me. I was under a lot of pressure or the spouse or the kids that were driving me crazy. So I responded this way and we just blame shift. And yes, I understand that the sins of others do and can and will affect you, yes. But God is wanting you to own, where are you? Where have you been? What's been happening? He wants you to realize where did you believe that he wasn't good? Where did the uprooting of truth happen? Where did you substitute God in your life for creation? And where are you rebelling? That's what God wants to do in your own heart. And he wants to start, where are you? Where have you unbelieved? Where are you struggling? What has happened? And it's causing break, brokenness in all of our relationships. And we see that play out all the time. And then last, this is one of the hardest ones. The effects of sin is death. That's not easy to say in front of a group of my friends or guests that because sin happened, death happens in the world. Do you know when Adam and Eve were created, God said they were created very good, meaning that they were well-working, not just morally good, but they were well-working, meaning that death was not on the table. Adam and Eve were created, and through the line us, we were created not to really die. 
We were created to walk with God on this earth for all of eternity. But when sin happened, death happened, and God's word is true. If you eat of this, you will surely die. Guys, if God is the creator of life and you detach yourself from God by defying him, there is nothing left but death. The question is though, what kind of death though? You shall surely die. What kind of death? Because did Adam and Eve initially right then and there die? No, they had a generation of kids. They lived until 800, 900 years old. And we'll get to some genealogies and ages in a little bit and couple weeks, we'll talk about more about how do we age things and date things, but they didn't just die right then. So what kind of death are we talking to? And Christians have wrestled with this for quite some time. In the fourth century, there was this Christian thinker by the name of Augustine. Kyle took a class on Augustine. I like to call him Augustine. Kyle tells me, no, it's Augustine. So it's Augustine. And he wrote this, if it would be asked what death God threatened them with, whether bodily or spiritual or that second death, that language itself is used for hell, then we answer, he says, in the fourth century, it's all of them. Guys, this breaks my heart to think about. The first death is when the soul loses its connection to God. We die spiritually. We're separated from him by sin and our relationship is severed It's a soul death is the first one. The second way Adam and Eve died is that their bodies will indeed return to the ground, that their lives itself will be over. So there's a spiritual death, there's a physical death. And guys, this is the hardest thing I'm going to say to you this morning. Because of sin and our rebellion against God's good ways, there is a third death that happens and it's an eternal death. It's a forever separation from God and his goodness for all of eternity under, under the weight of God's just punishment. I don't make the rules. It's hard to hear or fathom that sin brought that. And we can look at the world, we can see it. We see the broken relationships with people. We can see the shame. We can see the heartache. We can see the blame shifting. And then God says, because you've brought this into the world, there's a spiritual separation, a physical separation, and there's an eternal separation. And my friends, do you not see that this is not just Adam and Eve's story? This is your story. It's your story. It's it's my story. Genesis 3 is really also about you and me, guys. We, I, you, have went away from God's good plan. Every day when we choose to live our own way, to speak unkindly to someone, to mistreat, to have prejudice in our heart, to have greed. We rebel against God's ways. We prioritize the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We give more weight to our own opinions, put more stock in our own wisdom. We think we know best. And if God's will and our will conflicts, we often go with our will. We're willing to bend the rules and shift the blame if it helps us get ahead. Guys, isn't this your story? And my story, what we see with Adam and Eve, isn't it what happens with us? Guys, you and I are sick with sin. We're sick with sin. And we don't just need better version of ourselves. We need new selves. If the sin is in our hearts, we need heart surgery. We need something to come in our hearts and fix it and make us new. So what's our hope? This is the most beautiful thing I could share with you this morning. It's the cure for sin. 
the cure for sin. Right here, there's a turning point in the whole Bible. And it's a scene that happens in scripture that Peter tells us later in his book that the angels are shocked about what happens. They're bewildered at what God does. Verse nine, they're shocked that this happened, that God came looking for the man, for him. God was for them, not against them. God came looking for them. He said to Adam, Adam, where are you? They were looking, they were thinking, they were expecting that God was gonna destroy them. But instead God came to rescue his lost children. And when God finds him, God makes him a promise. He says to the serpent, verse 15, I will put enmity enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And then here's the promise of Jesus. Her offspring one day down her lineage, there will be a savior and he shall bruise or the word is crush your head serpent. And yes, you'll bruise his heel, which is the cross, but he ultimately will crush your head. This is the promise of Jesus. The woman's offspring down the line would be Jesus. And he would go in this cosmic battle that would take place where yes, Jesus, he would be bitten as he's being crucified on the cross, but Jesus would end sin and death and punishment for everyone who trusts in him. This is the first prophecy pointing us to Jesus in the entire story points at this rescue mission. I love it again in verse nine, God came looking for the man and throughout all of history, God's been coming looking to rescue his people. He doesn't want to be substituted because when he's substituted, you hurt and you wander into things. So God sends a rescue mission down through Eve's line that ends in Jesus. Guys, Jesus would come in Romans 5, we learn that he would come and be the second Adam, the truer, better Adam, who did what Adam and Eve should have done. This is what Jesus did. He withstood this temptation of Satan even when the stakes were higher and the temptation was stronger. Like Adam, Jesus himself, guys, was tempted by Satan. But unlike Adam, Jesus was in the wilderness, had fasted for 40 days, was in a harder circumstance, and he was victorious in the temptation. The second better Adam is Jesus. Also unlike Adam, Jesus receives three temptations, not just one like Adam got, but Jesus received three and he resisted each time. How did he resist? By doing what Adam failed to do, by focusing on who God is and his goodness and what he has done. Unlike Adam, Jesus actually felt the attack of Satan. In Genesis, after tempting Adam and Eve, the serpent just does what slithers away. But when Jesus withstands his temptation, the serpent bites him. Yet in a moment on the cross, it appeared that the serpent had won, but Jesus was actually crushing sin, death, and his power. Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate from the tree and died. But Jesus will obey God and climb on that tree and willingly die to bring you and me life. He'll climb up on the tree and be a curse so that you and I could be released from it. He will take the flaming sword of justice that guarded that entrance Remember the garden? There was the cherubim and there was angels guarding this. God would take that very sword of justice that guarded the entrance of the presence of God and he would take that into his very side so that you could go back into God's presence. And that's why the scene ends with this beautiful thing in verse 21. God takes an animal. Verse 21, God takes an animal and he kills it and he uses the skin 
to cover their what? Their nakedness and their shame. This points to Jesus because he would be the sacrificial lamb that his blood would clothe us with his righteousness. Richard Sibb says, thank God there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. That's not a beautiful quote. There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. So as we conclude, how do we get this cure? How do we get this cure for the sick in our hearts? It's through repentance and faith. Repentance means that you must come out of hiding. You must stop blame shifting. It wasn't the woman that God gave or the circumstances that God gave you. It wasn't my spouse. It wasn't my boss. It wasn't I was hanging out the wrong crowd. It was you and I unbelieving, substituting, rebelling. We have to take off the false loincloth of lying, of religion, and own that we need what Jesus can cover us with. His death, his life, his resurrection by faith alone. Guys, here's the rule of the gospel. Gospel means good news. Here's the rule of it. If you expose your sin to him, he'll cover it. But if you cover your sin, he'll expose it on the last day. That's exactly how this story concludes. Verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Guys, this story is your story. Does this explain what you see in your own hearts? Can you admit that your heart did more than just make mistakes? Can you admit that your heart is actually like sick with sin and you choose this? Have you realized that God in love is actually looking for you today? Christian and non-Christian, he's looking for you. Where are you? God, guys, have you sensed that in your heart? Have you sensed God's voice calling to you? Where are you? Would you trust in me? Maybe for the first time, if you're not a Christian, for the first time, would you consider that God is calling to you, inviting you to come and trust what he's done for you? Some of you have learned a lot about Jesus, but you've never taken off the false loincloth of religion, thinking you can earn your way to God. When God lived, died, and rose for you, there's nothing you can do to earn it. It's only what he's done for you. My question, Christian, non-Christian, we receive what he's done for you today by faith and trust alone. Let's pray.